Welcome to HJ Talks About Charities, a dedicated podcast series from our charities team at Hugh James. In this podcast, we talk about topical issues and the latest developments affecting charitable and not-for-profit organisations to help provide some practical guidance to ensure they run effectively. We are lawyers, so we will touch on the legal standpoints surrounding the topics, but don't worry, we'll keep the legalese to a minimum. This podcast was recorded on the 11th of February, so it's necessary for us to provide you with an update. The content and impact of the rules remain unchanged. However, since the COVID-19 outbreak, the government have announced on the 18th of March that these changes will no longer go ahead as planned on the 6th of April 2020 and will instead be delayed by one year until April 2021. This announcement was made with a view to ease the pressure on businesses and individuals. However, the announcement was clear that this is merely a postponement and all the same provisions will be brought into force. Good morning, I'm Emma Poole and today I'm joined by Sally Owens from our employment team and we're going to be talking about the off-payroll working rules, also known as IR35. These are relevant for our charity clients but also for the private sector as a whole and they're likely to take effect and make an impact on people in April of this year. So now is really the time when organisations need to be understanding the rules, knowing what to look for and sort of getting their ducks in a row if you like. So that's why we've scheduled today's conversation with Sally. Thank you for joining Sally. Thank you for having me. So am I right that this piece of legislation is all about HMRC basically getting more tax out of us? Well yeah effectively yes but um, IR35 has been around for quite a long time now sort of introduced back in 2000 and ultimately it was introduced to crack down on a particular form of perceived tax avoidance whereby individuals would seek to avoid paying employee national insurance and income tax um, by supplying their services through an intermediary, also known as a personal service company, um, and then paying themselves in dividends as opposed to deducting tax and pay YE. So, um, yeah, I suppose you could say that it's about getting more tax out of us. (laughs) So am I right that it applies where, um, say you've got sort of company one, if you like, and they then deal with another individual as perhaps a consultant, um, and it's where that consultant sits under a subsidiary? Yeah, so for example, um, with IR35, we're generally looking at a a three-party chain. So at the top of that chain, you've got the client. So that's the engaging business. It's the business who is engaging an individual to provide their services um, through a company. So an example I would give you is, for example, you might have an IT consultant who is providing their services um, through IT Consulting Limited to to the end business. So you generally have that three-party chain whereby you've got the client using um, an individual through their own personal service company. And that is ultimately what IR35 is about. It's looking at those types of relationships. I see. So if you if that IT consultant is the example you've given, if that IT consultant is doing it under the name of their company, they pay less tax in that arrangement than they would if they were an employee. An employee, exactly. Right. And I think what IR35 is ultimately about is it's, it's all about they're not concerned with relationships where you have a genuinely self-employed individual. What they're concerned about is when you have an individual who... But for the fact that they're providing their services through this personal service company, they would actually just be an employee of the organisation. I see. So what sort of things should 
of HMRC looking for when they're looking to decide that relationship? So effectively, HMRC are looking to determine whether the relationship between the organisation and the personal service company or the individual is genuinely one of self-employment or whether the contractor is in fact an employee of the organisation for tax purposes. And the way that we the, the way that we look at this is effectively we look at a range of decisions that have derived from case law to determine whether or not the, the that relationship is actually one of employment. Um, there's no precise legal test to determine whether an individual is an employee, but as I said, rather the test has been developed by case law and is based on a range of different factors. HMRC do have some useful guidance online um, in relation to the factors that they consider to be the most important when determining whether or not a relationship is in fact one of employment rather than self-employment but some of the sort of factors that they'll be looking at that have been derived from from case law that actually dates back to the 1960s um, ready mixed concrete being one of them and um, the sort of factors that they're going to be looking at are things like personal service so in order for an individual to be an employee they must be obliged to provide their services personally so quite quite often the sort of thing that trumps that is that if, for example, the contractor has a right of substitution, so in the event that the contractor is unwell yeah. for whatever reason and they're not able to provide their services to the company, can they send a substitute in their place? If they can do that, then that sort of trumps the idea of employment relationship because to be an employee, there's that requirement to provide your services personally. Um, another thing they'll look at is mutuality of obligation. It's quite a common term that's thrown around. Um, so HMRC ultimately states that as a minimum in an employment relationship, there must be an obligation on the part of the individual to provide um, his work or, or skill personally um, and that they must be pay in receipt of providing that service. Um, they'll also have a look at right of control. So, for example, in an employment relationship, you'd expect the the business to have a very large degree of control over that individual. So, you know, you will work at X times you will work at X place. Um, Self-employed, you usually expect the individual to be able to exercise their own judgment in relation to how the particular task is done. Um, so those are sort of three of the, the main things that will be looked at and some of the most important factors um, that will be considered by HMRC. However, there is also a number of other factors that will be looked at as well. So for example, is the individual in, bus in business on their own account? So do they provide their own equipment, for example, or are, is the equipment provided to them? Are they part and parcel of the organisation? So is the individual wearing, you know, the business's uniform, for example, when providing these services? Or are they actually in business in their own account and they're marketing their services to the world at large as well? So, as I said, no precise legal test, but lots and lots of factors to be to be considered when determining whether or not that relationship is in fact one one of employment. And so when organisations are thinking about whether or not um, that applies to them, do they need to go through that for every single contract they've got, work out whether those quite complex um, employment status tests apply? Or could they take a sort of shortcut, if you like, and say, look, we think IR35 does apply, we think you need to pay tax in this way, um, and sort of bypass it, if you like. Would that then potentially give that other person even more employment rights than just 
that that yeah. tax liability. So, I mean, I wouldn't effectively, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't advise any organisation to sort of take a shortcut when it comes to determining whether or not somebody falls inside or outside the scope of IR35. But I think one of the important things to note, as a result of the changes that are coming in from April of this year, whereas at the moment in the private sector, it's on the individual and the personal service company to determine whether or not they fall inside or outside of the scope the, the responsibility for doing that is going to transfer to the engaging business from April 2020. So it's going to be for the organisation to sit down and ultimately have a look at their contractor population and determine whether or not a particular engagement falls inside or outside of scope. There are, um, there are some tools out there that can help organisations make those determinations. So I'm not sure whether you've heard about it, Emma, but HMRC has a tool called CEST, so it's Check Employment Status for Tax. And what that tool does is it sort of runs through a series of questions whereby you you answer the questions and at the end of the test it produces a result and that result is where it gives you an answer as to whether or not an engagement is inside or outside of scope. The useful thing about that tool is that provided that it has been completed correctly and hasn't been completed in a fraudulent way to sort of manufacture an outcome, HMRC will stand by the result and outcome of that test. So that is one way in which an organisation can can determine whether or not they think an engagement falls inside or outside of scope. However, as is the case, um, there are some loopholes in in the test shall we say and it's not always a hundred percent accurate and so if an organization has any particular concerns about any arrangements because there are inevitably always going to be those arrangements that are clearly outside mm-hmm. there'll be those arrangements that are clearly inside but you always have those sort of tricky ones in the middle where you're not quite sure and I think it's on those particular ones that we would you know I'd be advising um, businesses to get some more advice and a second mm-hmm. opinion as to whether or not the, the arrangement's likely to fall inside or, or outside. And do they need to be really on top of it when it comes to their paper trail on this sort of decision-making process? Obviously, if they've used that tool that HMRC has, then that will sort of help that paper trail, won't it? But are there other records of decision-making that they need to keep? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, again, um, from April 2020, because the obligation is on the, the engaging business to, to carry out that determination... There's also a requirement to pass on that the outcome of that determination to the the intermediary, so the personal service company or the individual. Um, so quite often, as a starting point, we would say at the very least, organisations should be providing an outcome of the cessed result to that individual. Um, but also any further, um, you know, decisions that have been made, paperwork that has been looked at to consider whether or not something falls inside or outside. So, for example, a copy of the contract, that type of thing, um, that should all be kept on record in the event that in the future if HMRC were to ever investigate or that they disagreed with a determination that's been made, an organisation is able to demonstrate that they've got that clear audit trail as to how they've reached a particular decision. That could even be, for example, in with some organisations, they may feel the need to have to perhaps discuss in more detail with the the individual what does their job look like on a day-to-day basis what are they actually doing and it may be even keeping a record of of that conversation as proof of what's been said about a particular working arrangement so effectively I would be advising clients um, advising businesses to keep any sort of record in connection with IR35 just just in case HMRC decides to investigate. Now, we've talked about in sort of as, as simplistic terms as we can in terms of having that company one and then company two, if you like, which is um, where that individual sits under, underneath. Are there 
much more complex arrangements that you're actually seeing in practice where people are really having to look at their arrangements much more absolutely and and this is where things unfortunately do become slightly more muddy shall we say um, and a little bit more complex so it's it's fairly straightforward in that um, situation where you have a three-party arrangement like we discussed earlier but where things can become a little bit more muddy is where you have um, another sort of structure, shall we say, sat above the intermediary, and quite often that could be an agency. So, for example, you've got the client sitting at the top of the chain, so that's the the engaging business, the, the, the business that's benefiting from the services. And then between the, the client and the personal service company, you have an, an agency. So actually the client is contracting with the agency, and it's the agency that's contracting with the personal service company, and then you've got the individual beneath the personal service company. Um, in that situation, the, the reason that things become more complex from an IR35 perspective is because although the the responsibility to make the determination will stay with the client, if an, opera, if an arrangement does fall inside of the scope of IR35, where things can then change, if you've got, say, more than a three-party arrangement, you've got this chain for, say, a f- chain of four, um, the responsibility for operating PayYE, if the engagement does fall inside, would actually rest with the the agency and not the client. But it's still the client that has to make the determination. So I think in those sort of situations where you have got multiple chains, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it is absolutely advisable to, to seek some some further advice on those. Um, just because you do, as I said, there are the different. There's the difference between being the the fee payer from an IR35 point of view. So it's one thing making the determination, and it's another thing being the person that has to be responsible to to deduct tax and NI. And that's where things can get slightly muddier, shall we say? So yeah, absolutely, it can be more complex. And I mean, it sounds like quite a considerable job going through all of the contracts. I mean, are there just thinking of the wide range of clients we have that vary in size so hugely? Is there any exemptions if you're a particularly small business, for example? Is there anything? What are the tests to say whether you've got to go through this process? Yeah, so there is some good news in all of this. I, I think we should say so. HMRC has confirmed that small companies are excluded from the changes that are being brought in in April of this year. And ultimately, a company is small if it satisfies two or more um, tests, essentially, in any given tax year. And those tests are that the company's annual turnover is not more than 10.2 million, its balance sheet total is not more than 5.1 million, or it does not have more than 50 employees. So if you satisfy two or more of those conditions, you are exempt from the changes that are coming in. And effectively, what that means is there will be no changes. So when you are engaging contractors through personal service companies, the the responsibility to make that determination on IR35 is going to remain with with the personal service company and the individual and not you so oh that's that's helpful I suppose isn't it for those who yeah. just don't have the resources to spend the time absolutely on. because as 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 you've already said Emma this is going to be a very very time consuming task mm. for any organization that is caught by the changes so just having that slight comfort to know that we do have the exemption there for small companies so if it is something that you know you are concerned about then by all means have a look at the exemption at the moment and you could you know, and ultimately determine pretty quickly whether you're going to be caught by the rules or not. Am I right that it's applied already to the public sector for some time? Yes, yeah, you're correct. So the changes that are coming into um, the private sector of April this year, although there are some slight differences, which is sort of beyond the 
beyond today's conversation, shall we say, um, they largely do mirror um, the changes that were brought into the public sector back in 2017, whereby ultimately the responsibility of determining whether IR35 will will rest with the the end client, so the engaging business, and, and that has been the case for the last couple of years now in the public sector. Um, and when we say private sector, we are meaning not-for-profits and charities yeah, as well, so they're, they're definitely caught by, yeah. by these changes. Yeah, provided that they're not a small company. Yeah, yeah, yeah I see. Um, has there been any lessons learned from the way that the public sector have, have got their heads around things or anything we can learn in terms of the next steps that people could be taking? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the things that I've probably picked up on as an advisor in this in this particular area, and one of the most important things I think is really just as we've discussed the importance of having that audit trail of how a determination has been made. Um, you know, we are seeing some cases where HMRC are now investigating because there is some disagreement over whether or not IR35 applies or not. Um, and it just goes to show the importance of having that record of how decisions have been have been made. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I think is is fairly important is whilst you might make a determination at the outset of of an engagement and, and you might be satisfied at that stage, for example, that it falls outside of the scope of IR35, um, it's really important to note that these types of engagements need to be continually monitored. Um, because you know they, they could go on for years and years and naturally during that time things do change and things may change to the extent that something then you know tips it inside of scope so you know there needs to be um, a process in place whereby you are undertaking these checks to make sure that you are still satisfied that the the engagements outside or inside um, and I think having the appropriate records to demonstrate that you're doing that is really helpful, especially in the event that, as I say, if HMRC do sort of kickstart an investigation, how helpful it is to have to have that audit trail in place. And if you're chief executive of an organisation, who are you going to give this job to? You know, who's it going to rest with? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one, and ultimately that is ultimately down to the down to the organisation. And I think in terms of next steps that. Um, you know, businesses should be working on now leading up to the changes coming in in April 2020. I think one of sort of almost the first things an organisation needs to be doing is to sort of sit down and decide, right, who is going to be responsible for sort of heading this up? And like GDPR sure. really, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Who's going to be responsible for heading this up and who's going to be responsible for driving through these changes and making sure that we are absolutely compliant with the legislation? Now, it could be that that's somebody in HR, it could be somebody working in compliance, it could be somebody from your governance team. Um, ultimately, it's it, it's really down to the organisation, but I can't stress how important it is to either have an individual or a team of people who are ultimately, whose purpose is, is to drive through these changes and, and, and re- to be responsible for that. And that's probably one of the first things that I'd be saying, if you haven't already done it, absolutely you know, get on with doing that now and get sort of a team of people involved or an individual who can help see this through. Is there anything else that people can be doing right now? Yeah, so I mean, I think, again, as as well as identifying who should be responsible for driving this through in the organisation, I think one of the first steps is to identify and catalogue current engagements um, organisations effectively have with contractors. So, you know, you need to be essentially mapping out exactly what engagements you have in place and looking at the structure of those engagements and and how and and how they work um the reason that you need to do that is because once you've effectively identified your contractor population 
um, you then need to start making the determinations as to whether or not they're inside or outside the scope of IR35. And that in itself is, is a huge task. In order to do that, I think, you know, in terms of second step, I guess, is once you've identified that population, it's deciding how you're going to make those determinations. So are you going to, as a starting point, are you going to use HMRC CESS tools, for example, or are you going to sit down yourself just by reference to the guidance that HMRC have in terms of looking at all those key employment tests, having a look at those? Um, so you need to almost decide how you're going to make the determinations. And then once the determinations have been made, you need to communicate those decisions to the the, the relevant party, whether that's the agency or if, if you've got a party of more than three or if it's the personal service company. And then you also need to give those individuals an opportunity to appeal the decision. So effectively, there's it's, it's a sort of almost a dispute resolution process whereby if, for example, you determine that an engagement is inside a scope you have to write to the individual tell them how you've arrived at that decision and then give that individual an opportunity to appeal and then respond to that appeal within 45 days so it's it is fairly fairly complex in terms of looking at next steps arrangements and i think the most important thing an organization can do at this stage is really determine how they're going to do that do they have the resource to undertake that type of exercise in-house or do they need to consider outsourcing it so for example once you've identified your contractual population do you have the resource in-house to then sit down and decide who's inside who's outside of scope of IR35 or is that something that you might need a bit of help with if you outsource that kind of thing would it be HR consultants you're looking for legal advisors what kind of external support would they need Um, so that's the sort of thing that I've been helping some of our clients with in the last couple of months so we can do it in a range of ways so I have spent um, some days with clients sort of um, in in their offices effectively running through the engagements we can help complete um, set the CESS tool for HMRC because some of the questions aren't particularly straightforward albeit they are sort of yes no type answers as I said, HMRC will only be bound by those decisions if if you've answered them correctly. Mm-hmm. So it could be that we can sit down with clients and run through, um, assessed with them. We can um, we can also just go in and give opinions generally. So almost like a light touch audit as to oh, whether okay. or something falls inside or outside. Um, there's also as well we've been working a lot in conjunction with accountants. So it's almost sort of a bit of a team effort. Um, as an employment solicitor, I'm there to very much give my my opinion on whether I think the employment tests are met. So those factors that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Um, but it's always helpful as well to have an accountant on board to give. Obviously, I'm not a tax advisor. I'm an employment lawyer. Um, so it's obviously useful to have accountants on board to give their view on how they think that HMRC may deal with a particular, um, you know, particular piece of advice or or so on. So it, there's, there's lots of things organisations can be doing, but I think um, certainly something that we, we'd be more than happy to help with. We'll, we'll make sure that your contact details are on the link to the podcast, but for now, thank you very much. And Please, we'll thank you. see six months on how everyone's coping with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank Bye. you very much. If you'd like to take part in the conversation, suggest a topic or need some further guidance for your organisation, please get in touch at charities at hjtalks.co.uk. For more information on Hugh James and the services we offer, visit hughjames.com or check us out on Twitter at Hugh James Legal.